What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hello and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, I never meant to cause you any sorrow. I never meant to cause you any pain. I only wanted to pump you full of silver iodide and microwaves. I'm Joe McCormick. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And our regular host, Jonathan Strickland, is not with us today since he is currently in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, attempting to circumnavigate the globe in an old-timey wooden bathtub. But in his stead, joining us today is our absolutely fantastic co-worker, uh, former co-host of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, and the new host of Stuff of Life, which you're all very excited about. Julie Douglas. Howdy. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for being here. How you doing, Julie? Oh, you know, I'm pretty good. Pretty good. I'm excited about today's topic mm-hmm. because, you know, one of my one of my flags in my back pocket is a bit of a futurist flag. So is ta- a bit of a what? Futurist flag. Oh, I know okay. that's not one that just rolls off the tongue, is it? 
Yeah, it's kind of a tongue Futurist twister. flag, futurist flag, futurist flag, futurist flag. No, I can't tell. Are you talking about a literal flag or you're just saying that you enjoy futurism topics? I enjoy futurist topics and I do have a flag. You don't have flags in your back pocket proclaiming your interests? Only my interest in the Soviet Union. Of I, I suppose if by flags you mean cell phones, then yes. <laughs> hey, we should get on topic. No, <laughs> yeah. today we're going to be talking about <laughs> weather control, uh, the issue that has come up in the video series before. Jonathan has done a video about it back in January of 2014, and he's blogged about it a little. But I realized we'd never done a full podcast episode on weather control. And just so you know in advance, this is going to be part one of a two-part episode we're going to be doing on today's topic. So uh, please, after this one is over, join us next time for, for the exciting conclusion of the future of weather control. Yeah. Uh, also, when we came to Julie and said, hey, would you like to guest on our show while Jonathan is out? She said, she said yes. And we were like, well, do you want to talk about a thing? Is there a thing that you'd be interested in talking about? And you said weather control. And do you want to talk about why that is? Yeah, I'm uh, reading a book by Lauren Redness. It's called Thunder and Lightning, Weather, Past, Present and Future. And um, some of your listeners may be familiar with her past project. It's called Radioactive Marie and Pierre Curie, A Tale of Love and Fallout. Oh, yes. Which is a Aww. bit like that. But it's it's amazing the way that she goes after a topic because she really overlays a massive amount of reportage and research Um and then she kind of takes these illustrations and storytelling and history and weaves them all together. And she has done the very same for this book about weather. So, yeah, uh, and, and it's it's a gorgeous book. I mean, it looks it looks like an art piece, not a nonfiction title. Um, and it, and there's no reason why those two things can't exist at the same time. Yeah, it's kind of. I was thinking about this. It's like an adult uh, picture book, but in the very best ways. <laughs> you know, like, Somebody could take that the wrong way. She absolutely could take it the wrong way, but I don't mean it that way. What I mean to say is that she she does exhaustive research and in, in, in reporting, like I said, but she also kind of slips in all of the scientific understanding there and then takes it to another level by illustrating the concepts. Yeah, mm-hmm. Julie photocopied several pages for us, and I, I thought it was a blast to read. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And one of the things she covers is this idea of weather control and the implications of that. And for her, this came up as a kind of uh, side issue or complication in a discussion about what we could do to counteract climate change. Right. Right. And one of the examples that she covers is uh, a technology called the StratoShield. Now, I like it already. Strato Shield, doesn't it? I mean, it just sounds great, right? You got the sh- the Strato Shield up in the sky. No worries. Yeah, and but it also sounds like it could be a medical device. You think? Yeah, like you got your pacemaker, you got your Strato Shield. You, I'm not quite sure what it does. The Strato Shield or the pacemaker? <laughs> <laughs> the the internal Strato Shield. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I like I like to think that it like calms anxiety. Uh, it, what, what would this proposal do for for weather systems? Well, this let me I should mention that this is um, this is from Nathan Mirvold's company uh, called I believe it's called Intellectual Ventures, mm-hmm. and some of the listeners may be familiar with him uh he's known for sort of or what people have called you know patent trolling uh, 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 you know, we, uh-huh. we've talked about Mirvold on the podcast before he's okay. he does kind of uh 
eye-catching technology proposals. Yes. Did Mirvold have something to do with the mosquito laser? Oh, so I'm glad that we could return to this topic to get today, even though we're not <laughs> talking directly about insects. We still managed to tweak it in there. Yeah, if you want to hear about the mosquito laser, we did a podcast about that a while ago. Something about our war against mosquitoes. You can look it up on the website. Yeah, and I mean, it's and that's not surprising, right? Because the company holds 40,000 patents. So <laughs> probability-wise, you know a couple of them are going <laughs> to be great ideas and possibly pan out. And, you know, obviously they're in it for that. Um, but what they're interested in terms of global warming and climate change is solar radiation management mm-hmm. to try to counter the effects of global warming. So essentially what we're talking about is bouncing some of the sunlight back into space to prevent oh, okay. it from entering the atmosphere and then warming the atmosphere globally. Uh, so this would fall under the category of things we would call geoengineering solutions to global warming that say like, OK, we, look, we're just not going to get people to stop polluting. Everybody's going to keep putting carbon in the atmosphere. There's nothing we can do about it. So instead, we've just got to find a way to counteract the warming with some kind of massive yeah. engineering project. Yeah, it's, it's saying that essentially it's easier to stop the sun than it is to get people to not drive as much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. Which is why geoengineering has gained in popularity as a field, <laughs> right, over over the last couple of decades. But it's kind of a scary concept, isn't it? <laughs> It is, um, because what you're essentially talking about is an 18 mile high hose to the sky held up by balloons, like a string of pearls. <laughs> it pumps out aerosolized sulfur dioxide. So uh-huh. these particles would then act as a shield and reflect back the sunlight, uh, back into space and then help ameliorate some of the, the warming. Okay. It's a Mr. Burns kind of idea. It's putting an umbrella <laughs> over the earth to kind of help protect and, and block out some of that hated sunlight. Exactly. I can he- even hear him saying, like, oh, yeah. that sunlight. Well, what does he say? He's like, uh, for years, men has dreamed of destroying the sun. And I have the perfect technology, Stratoshield. So, I mean, if you think about it, it actually is a very elegant solution okay because we are talking about something that width wise is like it's no bigger than a garden hose and it's really cheap um so you've got some pros there uh meyervold also claims that the amount of particles up there would not obscure or change anything measurably in terms of our perception of the sky so you'd still have a sparkling blue sky mm-hmm. um and you could argue that this kind of device is just management of weather in earnest. In other words, we're changing the chemical composition of Earth's atmosphere. So why not just, you know, take hold of it and take responsibility for it? So those would be the pros. Right. But of course, anything that has the power to affect the climate on a large scale uh, also probably has the power to have some pretty devastating specific weather effects. And and we've talked about the difference between climate and weather on the podcast before. Oh, yeah. I, I like to use the analogy that uh, uh, climate is like a person's personality. Weather is like their mood today. That's a perfect analogy. So you essentially would be creating a kind of uh, I don't want to call it Prozac, but some sort of um, <laughs> mood-altering drug for the atmosphere <laughs> that you would have turned on forever, right? Or uh, indefinitely, yeah. because as soon as you change the circumstances, um, 
you would have to make sure that it would continue to run. Yeah, yeah. And and we don't know what effects that could have on on weather patterns and, you know, and and the climate in general over a long period of time and and whether whether it would be devastating or helpful or uh, more or less harmless. There's so many variables involved in the weather. Yeah, which is in a way like the the problems with this are kind of a microcosm of the whole topic, the problems with the whole topic, right? Like how do you control something that's so wild? But the biggie is that it could be used as a weapon. Oh, weaponized weather. Mr. Burns again. Well, it is. Yeah. <laughs> weather control in a weaponized sense is the classic uh, mustache twirling mega villain plot. You know, it's in the superhero, the old superhero cartoons. What does the mad scientist always build? It's a weather control machine. Of course it is. Because why? I don't know. He hates Earth. And he's like, yes, I'll I'll send tornadoes against you. Well, and I think it's one of those things, too, where it's like, well, well, you have that technology. I would like to have that technology, too. And I'm speaking as countries, right? Like yeah. Yeah. Canada is all of a sudden like, whoa, whew, U.S. is so close. How about we have that, too, just to ensure that, you know, we could control our own weather. And then, you know, certainly you could begin to really wreak some havoc with that. And we do have some examples of this type of warfare in history. Yeah, and I think that's going to bring us to our central topic today. So so throughout the podcast, we're going to be asking essentially how feasible is real technological weather control? Like, can we cajole the skies to bring rain to regions of drought or, or uh, dissipate tornadoes or throw tornadoes and hurricanes and lightning at our enemies? Uh, and and just generally play gods over the weather. And, and furthermore, can we do that without massively screwing up something somewhere else unintentionally? Yes, and that that is a very good point. Uh, because of, I think first we should start by looking at why exactly it is we're at the mercy of the weather, like wh- why it's been so difficult to control the weather, despite the fact that we've got all this great technological power that we can use to do other things with, you know, big, difficult projects. Why can't we just uh, uh, send a hurricane going the other way or, or do things like that? And, and I think there are two main answers to this problem. One of them is that weather events involve colossal amounts of energy, more energy than we realize. Because, you know, you get a, you get a, some wind and some rain. You're like, oh, well, you know, like a truck can hit me harder than the wind pushes me. So feasibly our technology should be more powerful than the wind, right? Well, uh, but there's, there's a lot more wind than there is truck. <laughs> I think that's a very good way of putting it. Uh, I, I found a really good answer to this question in a piece written by the American meteorologist Chris Lanzi, and he wrote this piece for the NOAA's Hurricane Research Division website, answering uh, a question they apparently get a lot. People are always asking, uh, why don't we just nuke the tropical cyclones? You know, there's a hurricane coming our way. Why can't we just nuke it? We got nukes. Strangely enough, that was one proposed use of nuclear technology that we did not explore in our in our episode about Operation Plowshare. Oh, yeah. They, they you know, we're going to dig tunnels with nukes. Why can't we nuke hurricanes? Lancy explains several reasons why this is not a good idea. We, we we will put aside for now the fact of of nuclear fallout and uh, <laughs> <There's that. laughs> kind of obvious <laughs> problems there. But but Lancy also points out that you've just got an energy problem. For example, he writes, 
A fully developed hurricane can release heat energy at a rate of 5 to 20 times 10 to the 13 watts and converts less than 10% of the heat into mechanical energy of the wind. The heat release is equivalent to a 10 megaton nuclear bomb exploding every 20 minutes. According to the 1993 World Almanac, the entire human race used energy at a rate of 10 to the 13 watts in 1990, a rate less than 20% of the power of a hurricane. Oh, that's, yeah. there's like a lot more wind than truck is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. yes. There's a like... lot more wind than truck. <laughs> uh, and furthermore, so it's not, it's also not just a question of how much energy you can create because we could just detonate a whole bunch of nuclear bombs and that would in truth create a lot of energy, but you kind of need to use your energy in a particular way. If you definitely want to stop a storm, uh, for example, Lancy says, for normal atmospheric pressure, there are about 10 metric tons of air bearing down on each square meter of surface. He's talking about in the ocean when tropical cyclones develop. Um, he says, in the strongest hurricanes, there are nine as opposed to 10. To change a Category 5 hurricane into a Category 2 hurricane, you would have to add about half a ton of air for each square meter inside the eye or a total of a bit more than half a billion tons for a 20-kilometer radius eye. It's difficult to envision a practical way of moving that much air around. So there he's talking about there are specific problems of pressure that affect the formation of hurricanes, tropical cyclones that turn into the hurricanes that we would want to deflect. And and we just don't have a way of putting the pressure where it needs to be. Well, and that's assuming a constant for that, right? Like mm -hmm. it's like each hurricane is going to behave that way as a category five and mm -hmm. assuming that whatever conditions that were arrived at were, which were an average, mm -hmm. <laughs> would be present. Yeah. Um, and so as we know, I mean, there's variables all the time. Yeah. And that leads us to the other thing. So number one, there's, there's a ton of energy. There's way more wind than truck. <laughs> and number two, weather is really complex and complex in the mathematical sense. Because if you ever wonder why the weather forecast for today and tomorrow is you know, it can be wrong, but it's reasonably accurate. But the 10 day forecast just gets less and less accurate as it goes on. And farther into the future, it's just a, you know, it's a dice roll pretty much. And this is because weather is chaotic and mathematically complex. Weather patterns are subject to tiny variations and perturbations and things like heat and pressure, which get amplified over time, uh, kind of like a swelling feedback loop in an amplifier. Uh, yeah, forecasts work or, or don't work, as the case may be, uh, by creating digital simulations of the current state of the weather in a given location and then adding in data from surrounding locations and and just kind of seeing how that mucks everything up and, and making a good <laughs> statistical educated guess of which muck up is the most likely based on based on what we know about what has previously happened under those kind of conditions. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, satellite and ground data can give us a pretty good idea of what's going on in a particular location at a given moment. But at our current state of technology, ha having all of that data almost hurts more than it helps because there's just so many variables interacting with each other. So so. Basically, you've got two factors that are making prediction difficult. You've got the, the number of var variables and the sophistication and or accuracy of the simulation software. So more data is better, but it makes it harder on the software. Yeah. 
And to revisit Lancey again uh, from from the same piece I was talking about earlier, he also talks about how it's it's difficult to predict the emergence of extreme weather events like hurricanes uh, because he says, for example, quote, attacking weak tropical waves or depressions before they have a chance to grow into hurricanes isn't promising either. About 80 of these disturbances form every year in the Atlantic Basin, but only five become hurricanes in a typical year. And so the problem is, I mean, so you can see a depression start developing, but you just don't know which ones are going to be the problem ones because of these unstable effects. Uh, Tiny variations get amplified over time, and that turns into a big storm or a big big box of nothing. And either way, it's hard to know in advance which it's going to be. Right. And you can try to manipulate it. You can spend tons of energy and time and financial resources to do that. But that doesn't guarantee that it's going to create an outer eye wall, which it might do naturally. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like flipping the coin. Yeah. But despite the fact that weather is both very energetic and thus takes a lot of effort to control and uh, very unpredictable, there have been plenty of ways throughout the past and up into the present that people have tried to control the weather. I would say all of them kind of strange and iffy, some of them complete rubbish. Yeah, Lauren Redness (laughs) has some (laughs) illustrations of them, actually, in her book. And uh, they they vary in nuttiness and effectiveness. Uh Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the ones I wanted to talk about is hail cannons. Have y'all ever seen these? I have not seen a hail cannon. So this is generally considered complete pseudoscientific garbage by okay. the meteorological community. They they don't think that there's anything to this at all. But they are a supposed weather control device that's been used for a long time, more than a hundred years, maybe a couple hundred years. Uh, it goes back into the you know I found a report about it from like 1909. Used uh, used by whom? Uh, oh, well, who's, you, who's running around with hail cannons? So let's say you've got a vineyard or something. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you are afraid of hailstones damaging your grapes. And so you want to keep the grapes safe. Uh, so you employ a grapes security guard. That's a terrible metaphor going nowhere. No, what you do <laughs> is you, you get this thing that looks like a giant upturned megaphone and you aim it up at the sky when there's an oncoming storm that you fear may bring destructive hailstones, and then you set this thing a squawkin'. I want to read a quote from one hail cannon manufacturer's website that I found. Yes, there are manufacturers today who will sell you these things. They say, quote, An explosive charge of acetylene gas and air is fired in the lower chamber of the machine. As the resulting energy passes through the neck and into the cone, it develops into a force that becomes a shock wave. The shockwave, clearly audible as a large whistling sound. It's got to be great to be one of these people's neighbors, by the way. Ooh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Then travels at the speed of sound. I like that. It's a sound that travels at the speed of sound. Into (laughs) and through the cloud formations above, disrupting the growth phase of the hailstones. The device is repeatedly fired every four seconds over the period when the storm is approaching and until it is passed through the area. What would otherwise have fallen as hailstones then falls as slush or rain. From everything I've read, scientists think there's absolutely no good evidence that these things work. But it it also works via the uh, the tiger repellent method, right? Because like every time you see a cloud and use it, and then it doesn't hail, woohoo! Proof that it works. 
little confirmation bias going yeah, on. Yeah. And right. I, I think that a lot of these methods, uh, prove out in that, in that way. Mm-hmm. In that, well, it didn't happen. So well, either it was never going to happen anyway, or this totally worked. Yeah. There's always a little bit of uncertainty. Now there's a different technology that's been used to control whether that I, I do think that there, it's also uncertain, but there's a little bit more to it. And that's cloud seeding, right? Yeah. I mean, there's evidence that it works to what extent, though, is still sort of the big question mark, right? Because again, thing, cloud formations sort of happen on their own. And so people spend an, a, a tremendous amount of time and effort to try to seed clouds. Now, I think most people are probably familiar with cloud seeding from the Beijing Olympics. Um, which the Chinese government used to try to clear the skies before the big event. Yeah, they claimed that they had perfect weather for the opening ceremony of the Beijing Olympics because they had uh, they had drained the clouds of all their rain and sent it on uh, unsuspecting cities nearby. Right, and cleared out all the the pollution uh-huh. as well. But it actually historically has its roots as a practical application in Vietnam. And it's you mean in the Vietnam War? Yes, not- yes. Excuse me, in the Vietnam War. Um, but more specifically, in 1963, there were some CIA embeds in Vietnam, and they were kind of worried about uh, Buddhist monks who were protesting the South Vietnamese president, who was an anti-communist ally of the United States. Uh-huh. And so, th- while they were keeping tabs on the monks, they noticed that the monks could withstand pretty much anything, including like tear, ga- tear gas and other aggressive acts toward them. But as soon as the rain would fall, they would disperse. Uh, that that kind of makes sense if you're doing a whole passive resistance thing. Like if somebody is being cruel and aggressive to you, you can hang out and and withstand what they're doing to you as an yes. act of op, uh, you know mm-hmm. as an act of resistance. But if it rains, if I mean that's not the enemy doing that yeah, to you. Yeah, if you, and if your underpants are damp, like man, it's just time to go home. <laughs> That's one of my yeah. That's one of the the, the creeds I live by. <laughs> so unless the sky is your oppressor, in Ooh. which cases, in some Ooh. cases, it may be. Man. It may be, and that's a whole other thing. Yeah, that's another episode right there. That is. Uh, so, so, so what? So what happened with these with these monks in oh, the well, CIA? Yeah, so the CIA was like, oh, we've got something to report to you there, Bill. Uh, it turns <laughs> out that if you could just make it rain, we could well we could do some stuff with this. And so the the CIA said, oh, okay, well let's let's look into this whole rain making endeavor. And they found out, you know, oh, 1946, Kurt Vonnegut's brother, Bernard, uh, a physical chemist. Figured out you could make a sacrifice to Jupiter. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) No, that's not it. Uh, Well, that too. Uh But more specifically for cloud seeding, Uh he found out while working for GE at the time that silver iodide was the perfect cloud seeding agent to really actually create precipitation. Uh-huh. And so the military... I think, wasn't the story before that they tried to use dry ice? Yeah, they tried a bunch of different stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a big moment, right? Like, you're like, no, it's silver iodide. This is this is the <laughs> thing. We are gods. We are making rain. Um, so you know that, that people in the government were probably like, oh, when can we use this? Wait, so did they actually use it on the monks? Yes, they used it on the monks. <laughs> wow. <laughs> they made it rain on the monks. And so they said, okay, maybe this actually has some sort of military application. Okay. So what do meteorologists think about that? I mean, do they, do they say, yes, they, they were definitely able to make it rain on the monks or, uh, or, or is it just kind of like, well, maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. 
Uh, again, maybe this is confirmation bias, right? Yeah. Like, oh, there just happened to be a weather pattern that was supportive of these conditions and it happened. But as far as I could tell, it, it looked like it was working. And so. And, it, and the monk thing wasn't the only time uh, during, during the conflict in Vietnam that this was put into use. No, right? that's just no. a taste. Right. That was just like a proof of concept, uh-huh. right? And so they created. Uh, Operation Popeye. Right. So the North Vietnamese government, this is famous if you ever heard about the Ho Chi Minh Trail in, in the Vietnam War. The North Vietnamese government was able to move troops and weapons and supplies up and down the length of Vietnam via the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which was this network of roads and tracks and tunnels. Uh, that went all all up and down Vietnam and then across its border uh, from Laos and Cambodia. And, uh, of course, a rule of war is that if you can disrupt your enemy's supply lines, you can often defeat them without having to outright destroy their fighting force. Uh, but th- this was a massive system of roads and stuff. And, and they tried bombing parts of it, but that wasn't effective at completely shutting it down. So another strategy that was tried by uh by the south vietnamese and the and the american troops was well what if we could just kind of make it really hard to drive on <laughs> exactly right like that there was like this four point or i guess walk on too i mean there was yeah. a lot of like there was a lot of hand and bicycle delivery sure. i think but so this uh, this clandestine weather control operation to to basically flood out the Ho Chi Minh Trail and make it difficult or impossible to use via weather control was known as Operation Popeye. Yep. Uh, from March 1967 until July 1972, uh, they aimed to, quote, increase rainfall sufficiently in carefully selected areas to deny the enemy use of road surfaces. And this is according to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. But they also looked uh, at different areas. And for instance, the Mu Gia Pass Bridge used by North Vietnam for supply transport was bombed over and over again to no avail. But... Uh, according to Ben Livingston, who's one of the pilots, it was easily washed out from cloud seeding. In fact, the entire valley flooded and, and, and there were lives lost in that. Um, so essentially what this was doing or the aim of it was to extend the monsoon season over North Vietnam and Viet Cong supply routes. Yeah. And that is assuming that the cloud seeding actually worked, which it the people involved with it think that it did, right? Um, yes and no. Yeah. So Redness actually talks about this in the book, and she talks about a 1974 Senate hearing. And there was a hearing with Dennis J. Doolin, who is a deputy assistant secretary of defense, and Lieutenant Colonel Ed Soyster. And I'm just going to read their quotes here because I don't think anything is more illuminating than this. Okay. Um, according to Colonel Ed uh, Soyster, quote, it was one of the most difficult parts of the project to try and quantify how well we were doing. And then Doolin says, in my own mind, on the basis of the material that I have seen, I'm not convinced that it had anything more than marginal effect. But that is something that even the experts disagree on. Huh. And Doolin, Doolin goes on to say um, that, you know, that being said, he would rather be stopped by a rainstorm than by bombs. So he felt like this was the more humane way to go about it. Yeah, there there did seem to be that strain of thinking, but it's weird to me because I I mean, more people get killed by weather events than by bombs. And if you can make extreme weather events happen, that is in some ways sort of equivalent to dropping bombs. You're causing 
large amounts of force to uh, be applied to an area in a way that they wouldn't usually be applied. And probably a lot of people are going to die. Right. It's still the, the truck wind thing, right? I mean, yeah. it can be catastrophic. Sure. It's like saying that sending a hurricane against somebody is more humane than sending a lot of trucks to run them over. <laughs> yeah, there's a little <laughs> bit of justification in there, perhaps. <laughs> okay, so hy- hypothetically, if this does work, how how does it work? Oh, well, so the basic idea is that uh, clouds form naturally in the atmosphere out of water vapor. And in order to induce rain or snow you add a huge mass of tiny particles to the cloud. And what this does is it gives water droplets something to coalesce around. This is what happens in clouds. Often, uh, you know, tiny particles that are suspended in the air will become the nuclei around which snow crystals or water droplets form, and then it rains. And so you can scatter them above or through the cloud from an airplane, or you can do the much cooler thing, which China does, and blast them into clouds with rockets. So you aim an anti-aircraft gun full of uh, silver iodide particles at a cloud, Mm -hmm. fire away, you murder the cloud with these tiny particles, and then it rains on your on your farmlands. Yeah, well, as as long as there are still explosions involved, I think that's really the important thing. If you're if you're not exploding people, then you still I mean, you've got to explode something and it might as well be a cloud. Well, Um, I I find that it's fascinating that cloud seeding, it's this thing that's been done for decades mm -hmm. and it has this huge pedigree. It's been used as a weapon of war. It's been used for uh, maybe kind of frivolous sometimes, but at least peaceful purposes in, in, uh, you know, having some nice weather for your Olympic ceremony. Uh, But that's not the only time China has claimed to do weather modification. The Chinese government has a whole weather modification program. It's officially part of their government. There's a Beijing weather modification office. I know also, uh, there were a few years ago, Abu Dhabi claimed that they were causing a bunch of rainstorms in the desert by, uh, by some ionization technique that I think was met with a bunch of skepticism from the scientific community, whether this was, uh, really working or not. Uh, I, I find it strange that despite all of these programs, we still don't have a very clear answer on exactly how effective cloud seeding is. Seems like it's probably sort of effective. Mm-hmm. But maybe not. I don't know. I, I wish there was a clearer answer yeah, on yeah. this. Well, and it might be the kind of thing where it it has been effective in certain situations and not in others, and it just happened to have the desired effect. But 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 again, we're getting back into that concept of there just being too many variables mm-hmm. to really be able to tell. And and not the the ability to to measure every single molecule, right? Right. Right. Which might complicate things. Yeah. But if, I mean, it would give you yeah. a clearer picture of that areas weather pattern yeah if we if we could get some like nano drones with with cameras in them up up into the cloud area broadcasting back to us exactly what was going on you know what you're describing you're <laughs> describing the plot of twister <laughs> don't you remember that um, all all that i remember about twister is cow that's it Twister, they're they're trying to get some all these little tiny robots to get sucked up into a tornado so they can see what's going on inside oh, the tornado. Oh, that did happen. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I remember there, there's a scene where the the opposing scientist gets murdered by the storm, and they're all like, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> the evil scientist. I love gets that. Gets dealt the death blow. The evil rival scientist who gets his comeuppance. 
Uh, but that being said, I think it's worth mentioning that there are 40 countries that have weather modification systems. Now, whether or not that's keeping up with the Joneses, I don't know. Uh, but certainly there is potential there in cloud seeding. We just don't know to what extent. Moreover, uh, when cloud seeding was used in Vietnam and, and it was brought to the public's attention, there was quite a reaction to it. And again, there was you know, another Senate hearing about it. And um, this led to the Convention on the Prohibition of Military or Any Other Hostile Use of Environmental Modification Techniques, or NMOD. 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 Uh, so the treaty went into effect in 1978. And this, is a, this is a United Nations treaty. Yeah. Um, in, in 1976, I believe the United Nations adopted it. And then I believe a year or two later, Carter ratified it for and said, yes, we, we agree to this. But it bans aggressive environmental modification activity on the scale of several hundred square miles. Oh, good. So there's a little bit of wiggle room under the word <laughs> aggressive. Oh, wait. It gets better. And it says that lasts for a period of months. Oh. Uh, so again, that's a little bit general and that involves, quote, serious or significant disruption or harm to human life, natural and economic resources and other assets. So as you can see, as you've already pointed out, there's a little bit of a loophole here and it has been criticized for that. Mm-hmm. So um, if you only smite a few people with lightning. For a short amount of time. For, uh, right, right. For, you know, over a period of days, not months. Then you're, then you might be in the clear. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Not asking for any specific reason, guys. Just, just, just like to have everything laid out. I understand. Uh, y- you need a strategy there for your rockets. I also need a mustache to twirl right now. <laughs> um, but uh, okay. So, uh, the question of whether or not cloud seeding is is effective t- ties back into that that question of of whether or not we can truly predict what the weather is going to do anyway because because of all those variables that are involved and and predictive modeling is another form of proposed control over the weather yes i would say that despite the fact that you're not actually literally controlling the weather there our our best line of defense to get today against the cruel whims of the weather gods is knowing what's going to happen in the near future. Uh yeah, and it's and it's that big data problem of of the the interaction between having, you know, increasingly more data about this sort of stuff and uh needing to create increasingly more sophisticated uh, computer software to handle that. For instance, supercomputers? Yes. Yeah, and whether or not it seems like it, it is true that our weather modeling has gotten steadily more accurate over time. You can track the progression of of uh, predictive weather forecasting as opposed to what actually ended up happening with the weather from the 1980s until now, and we have gotten better. And supercomputers might push that even further in in the relatively near future. Um, uh, I, I took a look into a project that was run in 2014 and 2015 in Japan with the K supercomputer, which K, K um, <laughs> which uh, which is the fourth fastest supercomputer in the world, uh, or, or was at least as of November 2015. The rankings are put out once every six months. Uh, it lives at the Riken or Riken probably, depending on your accent, Advanced Institute for Computational Science. And researchers there created a model of Earth's atmosphere from November 1st, 2011. 
uh, they, they plugged in data from satellites and ground radar stations all over the world. And, and to sort of keep it all organized, they divided the global atmosphere up into 112 kilometer sectors and then took that and ran over 10,000 simulations and, and statistically computed the most likely model outcome, which happened. I mean, didn't happen, which, uh, radically um matched up in the teenage mutant ninja turtle sense of the word radically uh, matched up really well with what actually happened from november 1st through november 8th of 2011 huh so really good number crunching is what they did and uh and and their main finding that, that the most interesting part about it was that that the butterfly effect is real mm-hmm. basically that that data from like around the Great Lakes in North America had a clear impact on the weather in Europe a few days later. And, and I mean, like, of course it does, right? It's common sense that the weather, the atmosphere is all one giant thing. Weather systems are connected. Uh, but it's really terrific to have this research to back that up. And they're saying that they're, they're going to work on creating tools for weather forecasters to start better incorporating global data in making their local forecasts. Hmm. So. Exciting times. Absolutely, they are. But one of the things that occurs to me about that is, you know, no matter how accurate our uh, predictive models get, one thing I notice when there are extreme weather events in this country is that often even when we have forewarning ahead of time, people do not take the proper steps that they need to take in order to prevent disaster from happening. You know what I mean? Like we can we can even have a pretty good idea that the weather is about to get really scary. And, and some people just, just are like, nope, I've got this canned corn over here. I'm yeah. fine. Or or we like, you know, mob a grocery store and say, give me all your food right now. Yeah. And then and then, you know, there are 14 car crashes in the parking lot. And I don't know. We're just not good at managing disasters. Is there any way we could get one of these supercomputers to do that for us, too? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because it turns out there's a market for this. Uh-huh. It's, there's a market for our inability to really assess a threat. Um and it's called disaster economics. Ooh, Ooh. I like that. Yeah. It's Can you major in it. that? I hope so. <laughs> right? I mean, that would like look great on your resume. Uh-huh. Um but Planalytics is a company that is profiled in Redness's book and um they actually have a bunch of clients who are concerned with weather and how it affects their bottom line. And a really good example is this grocery store chain in Florida. That's one of their clients um, that wants to know way in advance, like way in advance of the weather channel, if there's going to be a hurricane. Because it gives them a leg up on the ability to get the product, the number one product that sells out in Florida when a hurricane is predicted. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I know here in Georgia, whenever there's like a, like a snow warning, we, we run out of, uh, bread and milk and eggs. Mm-hmm. Yes. But it Pe- turned- people don't even eat those things. They just think they need them. It's true. <laughs> and I, I, I have done this before, by the way. Like, I'll fess up. I've been like, oh no, snowmageddon, let's get a loaf of bread. And then I eat my leftover pizza. I don't have ducks in my house. What am I going to do with bread? I'm not making grilled cheese. And, you know, like, uh, and so, yeah, right. So we don't always, 
react in a way that kind of squares with what's actually happening. And it turns out that this is regional, by the way. And so in Florida, if a hurricane is predicted, the number one thing they sell out of is fried chicken. Fried chicken. What? People just get a hankering for chicken when it's hurricane season? I, it's a comfort food, I guess. I mean, you know, like like a storm's a brewing, like you're worried about it. Uh, you, you don't have time to prepare a meal and, and you want something comforting and stick to your ribs. So yeah. fried chicken. Okay. Yeah, I think yeah, I think you're Kinda onto something sense. there. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is a comfort food thing. And so that grocery store chain has to then secure a buttload of chickens. <laughs> and they need to contact the chicken houses in Georgia and South Carolina and put their orders in just to make sure that they can take advantage of this swell <laughs> of fried chicken buyers. Impending disaster and swell. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's okay. almost like we see this uh, complex system of cascading dynamic effects in the human side of the storm, just like we see in the chaotic uh, uh, developments of weather patterns. Yeah, because, I mean, essentially, like, weather is emotional, right? Like, uh-huh. you, you look up at the sky and you can't help but to, you know – project your own feelings and fears and all of that stuff on it. And I feel like it's just sort of like these ancient tropes within us. And so yeah. it's like survival, weather, fried chicken. <laughs> I know. I look up at clouds and say, why can't I control you with lasers? <laughs> yeah. I've, I've overheard you say that before. Yeah. Actually. It's, yeah, we, we, the office is really, I mean, it, it, it's an open office, so we can that, all hear you. That's my greasy face smudge on all the windows. <laughs> When I'm here early in the morning staring at the sky uh, with anger in my heart. And Joe, you mentioned lasers and you're not just being purely ridiculous. That is a proposed future way of controlling the weather. Uh, but we have just about run out of time for this episode. So uh, so if you would please join us in our part two of this weather extravaganza, we will pick back up with these uh, with these future proposals of how we may soon be controlling weather across the globe. Totally. So join us next time where Julie will be back with us. And I really want to thank Julie Douglas for joining us on this episode today. It has been so much fun, Julie. And hey, while you're here, why don't you tell us about your new podcast? Oh, it's the stuff of life. It's just this podcast that just came out. I think we're two episodes in. I'm not sure when this one will air, but so far we've got The Power of Fear. And uh, glossophobia, which is the fear of public speaking. And Joe, you are on the power of fear. And Lauren, you are on glossophobia. And um, I'm so happy to have you guys' voices and your insights on the stuff of life. Um, I am. Insights. <laughs> yes, insights. So oh, it, was, it was so much fun. I, I had a really good, it was a really good conversation. Yeah, and you guys are great. And it's, it's awesome that you showed up and um, – hung out with us. So the stuff of life does have, um, a, you know, a little bit of a different format and that it has some interview with experts and then it has, um, some folks from how stuff works and some lovely soundscaping. Uh, uh, you've been working with, of course, our terrific producer, Noel to, to create some orig- original music for it yeah. and stuff like that. Sound effects, lovely things. So if you are a fan of this show, I bet you would be also a big fan of Stuff of Life. You should definitely check it out. Julie, where can they find it? They can find it every Wednesday at uh, iTunes, of course, or, you know, whichever your favorite podcast purveyor is. I know it's on Stitcher and Spotify as well. Mm -hmm. And they can find you on social media, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, they can. Uh, You can find uh, us on Facebook and Twitter. I, I believe it's Stuff of Life Show. 
Uh, if you would like to find forward thinking on social media, you can, you, you should, you should get in touch. Let us know what you think about this. If you have any other questions for us, you can find us on Twitter at FW Thinking. Search that thing on Facebook. You can also email us at FW Thinking at HowStuffWorks.com. We hope to hear from you and you will hear from us again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash There are choices that can change your life. Like the choice to start routine colorectal cancer screening at age 45. It's one of the most common cancers for women and men, and it doesn't always have symptoms. But there's good news. Routine screening can catch colorectal cancer early and even prevent it. And there's even better news. You have screening options. Make the choice to put your health first. Talk to your doctor about your screening options. Or visit cdc.gov slash screenforlife for more information. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.